Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, the podcast that brings you practical advice, lessons, and stories from senior leaders and thought leaders from around the world. The Strategy and Leadership Podcast is brought to you by SME Strategy, working with organizations around the world to create and implement their strategic plans. To learn more, visit smestrategy.net. And now, your host, Anthony Taylor. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, folks and people. My name is Anthony Taylor, and this is the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. I am very excited to speak with our guest today, Howard Tierski, who is the CEO of From the Digital Transformation Agency and author of Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. I needed to make sure I got that right. Howard, how's it going today? Awesome. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Oh, I'm excited to talk about your journey. I'm excited to talk about your book and everything that you see it from. So I'm going to ask you, what is the most exciting thing that you've done in the past 20 days? Ooh, the most exciting thing I've done in the past 20 days. Well, maybe it was my son Joseph's ninth birthday party because we decided to do it. We decided to do it in the backyard because COVID, you know, we didn't want to do anything indoors. And we got one of those companies that brings a laser tag set up. So we had like, and we did it at night, like in the evening. So the kids came, they had pizza, the sunset, and then they got these laser tags and they were running all through our backyard and climbing on our swing set and everything uh, with their laser tag guns for like an hour and a half. And my wife and I could just sit on the porch and watch them all uh, shoot each other for an hour and a half. So that was pretty cool. That is amazingly cool. And I'm so glad I asked that question. So let's talk a little bit about digital transformation, uh, the work that you do on a day-to-day basis in your book. So maybe you can say a little bit about your bio at the same time. Sure. So, you know, it's funny. I was, I hadn't thought about it before, but even the laser tag is a little bit of the digital transformation of play, right? You know, I mean, you know, they have all these guns and the guns actually have little screens on them to control what kind of spray pattern you're using and then there's a system that knows who shot who and everything so here you have digital being engaged you know not just for something that kids are sitting and playing with on a computer or on an ipad but they're running around they're getting exercise you know they're engaged in real world play this isn't minecraft and yet digital has now been infused into that whole thing as a, just a natural part of it so we have a way of keeping score and i think that's actually a good metaphor in a way for what's happening throughout the world to me Digital transformation is something, you know, so often I'm brought in to talk about the digital transformation of a company, and that's the work that I do. But in fact, the more important topic of digital transformation is the digital transformation of the world and the digital transformation, perhaps even more importantly, the businesses of the customer. Because all of us as as consumers and customers, whether we're talking about B2B or B2C, have been going through a digital transformation unless you, you know, live in a cave somewhere or whatnot. And there are a few people like that, but let's sit them aside for a minute. For the other 98% of us, we're all walking around with smartphones, we're all connected con- constantly, and we are all living a lifestyle which is increasingly digitally centric. And that is a massive, massive change, even from where we were 10 or 15 years ago. And furthermore, that transformation, I think, as we all know, has been massively accelerated by COVID. Wherever you were in your personal digital transformation journey, you moved forward a lot more in the last 18 months than you probably did in the prior 18 months because of a forcing function, because you could know the things that you hadn't yet adopted digitally. Maybe you were still going to the bank. Maybe you were still going to the grocery store, still going you know, out to dinner the old fashioned way. These things were taken away. And so, so many people adopted digital in areas that they previously had not. And so that's what's happening in the world. So then when you start to talk about an individual business, 
it's a very simple thing, which is businesses in a world is changing so rapidly. They really have two choices. They can transform to keep up with the change in the world, or they can become irrelevant. And that's kind of the, you know, it's, it's kind of that simple. And we, of course, have seen over the last decade plus a number of great brands that have gone out of business. And, you know, companies never go out of business for only one reason. But you can see a pattern across many of these brands, which is just that they didn't successfully figure out how to be relevant to a digital customer. And at the same time, there are other brands. Of course, there are brands that we think of as pure digital brands, the Googles, the Facebooks, Netflix, Airbnb, Uber, et cetera, who clearly are great at it. But that there are also pre-digital brands, shall we call them, legacy brands, brands that were not built for digital initially, who have made an unbelievable transformation. And at the same time, there are a great many legacy brands that are still struggling. And so today, the, the, my mission and the work that I do is all about working with brands wherever they are in their digital transformation journey to help figure out what do they need to do to keep modifying, updating, changing, transforming the experience they're giving to their customers so that it can be as relevant as possible for today's, you know, what, what today's customer needs, which is something that aligns with their digital lifestyle. It doesn't only mean digital stuff. It's not only about apps and websites, but that the overall customer journey is designed for a digital customer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And as you can see it in like the changing of the economy, there's all of like the digital processes, automation. I also see the changes in the economy themselves, pushing like downward price pressure on people so that they need to be like even more effective in that. You know, we're talking about the great resignation that's happening. I'm interested later to ask you about your perspective of the digital customer being an employee. But before I do that, scopes of digital transformation. Do you feel that depending on where you are at as a business, whether it's like a small to medium enterprise versus like a larger business versus like a fortune kind of company, do they have different kind of scopes for the digital transformation? Or do you feel like most organizations have to go through the same kind of digitization to maintain their relevance in the market? Well, that's a very interesting question. I think there's sort of two dimensions of scope of digital transformation. One is how ambitious is it or how digital is it? And the other is what is the scale of change necessary to get to that level of digital within that organization? Clearly, for Starbucks to roll out a new digital initiative that affects thousands of restaurants is a much larger scope effort than, you know, Bob's Diner, where they just have one location, you know, in some town. So clearly, a larger company has more people to, to deal with and change and train. They have more systems to modify, more customers to educate. So clearly, that affects the scope. As far as the level of vision or ambition is concerned, however, I don't think that big companies need to be thinking about more ambitious transformation and small companies should be thinking about less ambitious because they're dealing with the same customer. If, and, and very often, you know, does Bob's Diner compete with TGI Fridays? They absolutely do, right? <laughs> uh, it's not, you know, even though TGI Fridays has hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands, I don't know, of locations and Bob's only has one, when I'm going out to dinner and one, they're both within a three-mile radius of my house, 
this is what I'm choosing. So they need to be competing head to head with a company, no matter how large or small. And because large companies have to do more work to achieve the same ambition of transformation because of their simply because of their scale and complexity, small businesses have an advantage. They can often transform more easily than large organizations. And so they should take advantage of that advantage in the competitive market that they that they operate in. And I'll, let me give you one simple example so it doesn't seem too abstract. Let's take restaurants, since we're talking about that as an example, and let's talk about digital menus. So, yeah, you like that? So during COVID, one of the things that happened was a lot of restaurants, very few restaurants, other than quick service restaurants, which is kind of a different situation where you have those big signs that are digital menus. But let's talk about sit-down restaurants, whether casual or you know higher end, uh, have not by and large adopted digital menus pre-COVID. They largely were still in the world of the same thing that's been happening for decades. They bring you the printed menu, you open up, you order, the, the waiter writes down your order, they bring it to the kitchen, they, probably, they might key it into a system that you don't have to see, a point of sale system, or they might just take that piece of paper and stick it on one of those clippy things and spin it around so the chef can attempt to read the handwriting of the wait staff and make your order. And very often they get something wrong, right? <laughs> Excuse me. And um, but during COVID, because they were worried about the germs being passed on the menus, uh, a lot of restaurants moved to the QR code. Everyone's got a cell phone in their pocket. Scan the QR code, read the menu on your phone, and that was you know not a transformational change. Really, you were very often looking at a PDF of the exact same menu that they would have handed you. It was just done for sanitary reasons, but it's a step in a certain direction, and so. The question is, how far do you want to go? Well, I've been in some small restaurants, small meaning, you know, single location restaurants or a restaurant with just a two, two or three locations that have implemented full digital ordering systems where you sit down. There are a number of, of platforms that provide this to restaurants where you sit down and the restaurant's menu is presented to you on your phone. You, of course, scan the QR code, but instead of bringing up a PDF. It's a, a sort of an Uber Eats-like experience or a Grubhub-like experience. I can look at different categories, even sort and filter, only show me the gluten-free stuff or whatever, and then order the stuff I want. I can tap. I can see a photo of all the dishes, not just the ones that the person who designed the menu decide to put a picture of, and essentially place my order that way without necessarily having to talk to the wait staff, which means I don't have to sit there and have that experience of saying, when is the waiter going to come take our order? You know, And of course... I can also pay right from that device, either when I place my order or sometimes it's when your meal is over. And if I have a desire in the middle of the meal to have another beer or another hors d'oeuvre or whatever, again, I just go to my phone and I don't have to lag down a waiter, et cetera. So a lot of advantages from the customer's experience perspective and a lot of advantages from the restaurant's perspective because number one, you mentioned earlier the great resignation. One of the biggest problems that so many retail locations have today, whether it's restaurants or stores, is that they just don't have enough people to staff. They're so short-staffed, and that's creating a lot of customer dissatisfaction. So if you think about a sit-down restaurant, typically you interface with your wait staff three times during the course of a meal. They take your order, they bring your food, and they deal with the check. Well, if you have a digital menu tool, they don't necessarily have to interface with you to take your order. Now, if you have questions, you may want to ask, but otherwise, for many times, you can just go place your order. And then, yes, they have to bring you your food. And then when you want to pay your bill, again, you don't have to interface with them. So potentially, you streamlined a three-part interaction down to what might only be one interaction. 
or it might go up to two because the wait staff might then have the time to come by and say, do you want me to take a photo of you guys while you're at the table or do other things to enhance your dining experience because they don't have to be busy running your check or running back to the kitchen with your order, et cetera. So just, just as one example, though, where if you wanted to implement that for every TGI Fridays, it would be a much bigger program than if you just wanted to do it at one individual location. And that's what I think small restaurants should be doing right now is saying, how do I create a better experience and how do I streamline my operations, both to lower cost, but also to deal with the labor shortage? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I love that you've tied in not only the digital transformation piece to the solving a problem and then the upside and then the sort of mitigating the downside. I do want to touch on a couple of things that you had mentioned. So one is uh, technology and digital transformation is a great equalizer so that in the marketplace, which is now both consolidating and changing rapidly, that you can get a leg up from a competitive advantage standpoint from incorporating that technology. It's cheaper now than it will be in the future for growing businesses, this is the least busy you're ever gonna be. So do it now while it's cheaper. The speed of the customer. So often, especially legacy businesses, bigger ones that are slower, they think about themselves and all of the pains, but you have to adapt to customer wants and needs. A, a tool for everybody listening, I really like the business model canvas as you're looking at digital transformation and Howard is the expert for sure, but just think, hey, what does my customer want? Not what I want. And then I think that one of the things that people don't always think about, they always think about the pain. What happens if I give up menus versus what is the gain I can get for myself? We have a client that saved six figures not printing menus. There was a benefit. It creates a greater customer experience. The customer's happier. Just on the printing, they save that much money? Just on the printing, yeah. Holy smokes. But you always think about it, or I've seen leaders, they say, oh, change is bad. But change isn't always bad. You just have to really put yourself in that position of looking at the, the upside. So two questions. One is, how do companies decide? How do they get aligned? How do they go in the process of saying, how far do I go? I could go this far, I could go this far, I could go this far. How do they make that decision? I'll start with that one and I'll ask you the next one after. Yeah. Well, I think the most important question is, what is going to drive the customer behaviors that you need to be successful as a business? It's a question of how far to go, but also how far is only one measure. There's also the question of, of what to do, right? It's not just a question of, it's not like a, like a, you know, a, a dial, right? Or a thing, just a digital transformation more or less, you know, in theory, what is transformation? Transformation is just a fancy word for change, right? So if you're here, you could change in a lot of directions, right? You go up, down, left, right, you know, and some of them may not help your business at all, right? If you take all your restaurants and say, instead of being green, we're gonna paint them all blue. We're gonna spend billion dollars repainting all the restaurants blue. Are you gonna improve your restaurant? You've transformed from green to blue, you know? Uh, I mean, silly example, but the point is, it's not about just sort of looking at technology and figuring out what should we roll out, but really understanding what's going to make a difference for the customer. What is going to create more value for the customer in such a way that you get more of their business, either because you're more competitively preferred or because they're just, you know, maybe instead of eating in, they're going to dine out more often because you've created a dining experience, which is more convenient or more personalized or just an overall better value. And so I think it starts by understanding the customer. And in my book, Winning Digital Customers, I talk about a five-step process for digital transformation. And the first step is understanding the customer. And we provide all kinds of different practices and guidelines and, and, and things to how to do that, how to really make sure that you're, you're leveraging all the stuff you already know about your customer, because no business is completely ignorant of their customer, but filling in the gaps to make sure you have a full understanding 
because then you're going to be in a much better position to say, what are the things that would really make a big impact? And then I would suggest, you know, you want to go through kind of create a portfolio. And what's cool is when you do this kind of research, sometimes you find things that you can improve that are actually pretty simple to implement. You just didn't realize until you went and spent the time to really study the customer journey that your customers are really annoyed by something or frustrated or confused by something. And it's just a matter of putting a better sign up, you know, or changing a policy or just hiring one more person to play a key role that's going to make everyone's experience better. And so it's great when you find those things because they're kind of like those no brainer things. Once you realize what they are, you're like, oh, wow, the ROI and this is going to be huge. And then when you come up with the bigger, more transformational ideas that are going to be more costly and time consuming, and yes, maybe painful to implement, I don't think you want to shy away from the reality that change does create inconvenience and pain and cost for the company, and sometimes even for the customer, then you want to gauge, well, you know, what is the upside of this? As you said earlier, Anthony, you know, what, what is the short and long-term benefit that the customer is going to get? And even if it's a benefit you get as a company, I always like to think of things in terms of the customer. In other words, for example, you know, Skype comes along and, and figures out a way to create much lower cost, long distance, a long distance call experience. So you could argue, well, that's really a cost saving play, right? But that means that they're able to turn around and offer long distance calling to people that were previously paying several dollars a minute for a penny a minute or two cents a minute or even nothing. And so, yeah, it's cost savings, but it's transformational in terms of the customer's experience because you're able to offer something at such a radically different price point, which now people can call for much longer than they could before, make calls that they couldn't have afforded to, et cetera. So hopefully even the things you do as a company that are about driving your own operational efficiency, of course, some of that can go to profit, absolutely. But ultimately, hopefully you're using that operational efficiency to create a more compelling value proposition for the customer, because that's really where most business growth comes from. Hey, sorry to interrupt. It's Anthony here again. I just wanted to let you know if you're enjoying today's episode, I'd love it if you could give us a review and a comment to let us know where you're listening from. It means a lot to us. It helps us with the algorithm. It also helps us get into the hands of more people so that we can keep bringing great guests onto the show. So please do that. Also, if you or your team are planning a strategic planning offsite coming up, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to see if we're a fit to facilitate, to support you and your team getting on the same page and getting clear about where you want to go. So you can visit smestrategy.net or click the link in the description. We'd appreciate both of those things. And now get us back to the episode. Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate that, you know, the being outcome focused. So when you're looking at this, because some people think change for change sake or transformation for transformation sake, blue, blue building, red building, let's do it because it's a rebrand. Well, if it's not adding value to the customer, if it does, great. If it's not, why would you do it? And then I like, I love the idea of creating a portfolio so you can prioritize and go through that and then focusing on being, are you busy or effective moving that forward? Thinking about it from the customer perspective. And one thing that came to my mind as you were explaining that long distance examples, if it's possible, I believe somebody's going to do it. So it might as well be you because if somebody beats you to the punch, they're going to eat your lunch, which like Netflix Blockbuster, they did it faster. They ate their lunch and we all know how that went. It's going to happen. Have you seen uh, companies that have, without naming names, companies that have been resistant to digital transformation and then their competitors got that first mover advantage on them? Well, certainly. Uh, I mean, honestly, it's hard to find any company that doesn't have resistance to change. It's a natural kind of human psychological 
component. And not only is it a human component, but most businesses have been designed to resist change because this is the whole idea of systemization, process definition, you know, let's bring people into our bank and let's train them. This is how we do it here. And that is very often the essential idea of a business is standardization. And then all of a sudden you say, oh, well, now let's throw it all out the window and transform. And it can feel very unnatural and un uncomfortable. So yeah, most organizations resist change. And absolutely, you know, when competitors, including asymmetrical competitors, like small startups, all of a sudden start doing something in a very different way, it can be a great gift because all of a sudden, you know, the thing that you thought was impossible, you know, it's like when that, I forget who it was, whoever first broke the three minute mile, you know, no one thought that they could break the three minute mile and someone broke it. And then within a couple of years, there've been like 10 people who broke in the three minute mile. Previous to that, people just saw it as an un, un, un you know, uncrossable barrier. So I think that's the beauty of, of competitors that, you know, you might feel like, oh no, someone's ahead of us. But especially if you're paying close attention to competitors, when you see something that's taking off, you can use that as a burning platform within your own organization to say, hey guys, we need to do this. And I mean, look what's happening in banking. You know, we're seeing so much more um, acceptance and adoption, for example, of a Bitcoin or other, um, you know, cryptocurrencies because, well, you know, they see other, uh, you know, sort of startup fintech companies having so much success with it or better ways of handling peer-to-peer -peer bill payment, like the success of Zelle and the way that's been adopted by so many large banks. They had bill payment before, but it was this sort of old clunky ACH type stuff. And just, uh, you know, you see you see others being successful with something and you realize you got to you got to get with the program. So I think that's absolutely a helpful one helpful method of creating a burning platform to drive people past that, you know, resistance of change. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it, like speaking of that, the critical mass for it to be like, hey, I'm an innovator to, oh, this is common accepted practice. Let's do it. So making sure that you're not doing things too early because that happens as well. But I think it relies on a willingness and awareness to not only look at your competitors or alternatives, small, big, medium, large, but also uh, being aware of the general trends in the marketplace so that you begin that awareness as you look around you. So what would you say are the biggest challenges, faux pas, maybe mistakes that people do as they undertake this digital transformation? And your five-step model probably comes into play here. Well, you know, there's mistakes you can make at every level. I think the first, as I mentioned earlier, the first step is to understand the customer. And I think the first mistake that companies make is they don't take the time to understand the customer. They say, great, we're going to do a digital transformation because, you know, our board of directors said we have to or they gave us some money. And then everyone has a, you know, everyone is at heart wants to be creative, in my belief. You know, I mean, it may not be true of everybody, but a lot of people. So all of a sudden you have all these ideas. Let's do this. Let's drones or, you know, Bitcoin or let's do this with virtual reality or augmented reality or artificial intelligence. And, and those are all great tools. But if you just start throwing technology and cool, cool gadgets at a, a customer experience, it, you know, you're probably not going to make a lot of progress. Uh, you know, I, I tell a story in my book about a woman named Uni Haskell who became an Internet celebrity because she decided to learn to play golf. She'd never played before. She was, I think, in her 50s. So she uh, I think she took one lesson maybe and she she rented some clubs at a, at a golf course and she goes out to the first hole and um, she puts her ball on the tee and swings the club and gets a hole in one very first hole of her very first game of golf ever. And of course, everyone was amazed, you know. And so I think that a lot of companies, you know, that don't take the time to understand their customers, they're trying to repeat that kind of success. They're saying, well, you know, just, just take a hard swing at the ball and hopefully we'll get that hole in one. Probably not, you know. And I don't think that that woman 
ever did it again. So once in a while, you can fail to just follow the right steps and still just get supremely lucky and have success. But if you look at those companies that are successful repeatedly at delivering products the market likes or at repeatedly iterating products so that they stay current with the market, they're following a different process. They're using a customer-centric approach. They're constantly researching things with customers to understand points of customer pain, prototype things, test them, using some variant of a design thinking type process. This is what works. And I talk about that at length in my book about how to use design thinking in a practical way around these types of uh, enterprise transformations. And I think that, so that's, I think the first mistake is failing to um, really not just do like, well, we did a customer survey or we did NPS or something, but to really get obsessed about understanding the customer's points of pain and how you can uncover those because that that should be your aiming. And you know, if you try to hit a target, don't aim, <coughs> probably not gonna hit. I think another uh, mistake is to underestimate the resistance to change. We kind of already talked about that, but to just know a lot of times people that lead transformation uh, have a lot of enthusiasm for change. There's people in the world who love change and always want to innovate. They are the minority. They might be 10% of people that have that gene turned on in them. The vast majority of people would just assume leave things more or less as they are. You know, a little improvement is always nice. Oh, the fabric uh, softener now has a different scent. Okay, let's try it. Sure. But like a completely different way of washing your clothes Eh, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? A lot of people feel that way. And so when you go to your organization with your bold new vision of how you're going to, we don't need the call centers anymore. We're going to just use artificial intelligence. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to bypass the retailers. We're going to take the orders directly. You know, you're going to get a lot of people who are not going to be happy with that, no matter how great it is, or even necessary it is to save the company. Uh, you're going to get a lot of resistance for a variety of reasons. In my book, I talk about, I think, 10 reasons that people resist change. There's a lot of different flavors of why. Sometimes it's because they fear for their jobs. Sometimes it's because they have a kind of an empire in the company. And if you make this change, it's going to mean they've got, you know, like less people reporting them, et cetera. Sometimes people just don't think it'll work and they fear failure. Um, some people just don't want the hassle. Some people are have a very short-term mindset too. They say, well, this involves a short-term investment of effort and pain. It's kind of like losing weight, you know? Do you want to like be a little hungry today to look great tomorrow? And for a lot of people, the answer is no. I want to look great tomorrow, but I don't want to, I don't want the short-term pain. And you know, sometimes you have CEOs whose bonus is based on annual EBITDA and uh, an investment this year that's going to pay off next year. Well, he might not even be there next year, you know? So a lot of CEOs have short, short tenures these days. So there's all kinds of reasons why people resist change. And if you're the person at a company who's sort of said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure out how to pull this company into the 21st century. I'm gonna help set this company for success. Expect that there's a lot of people within the organization who are out to get you. So I think that's the second thing that people underestimate. So anyway, there's a couple I could go on, but let me let you back <laughs> I in. For well, I, I think the key part is to make sure you get the book, but I, I really love, I mean, at the heart of it. Oh, is the number, mistake number one is that they didn't buy my book. I should have said that to begin with. <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to give you softball questions on purpose, but you know, obviously the book is good and you know what you're talking about. Um, but you know, the customer experience, and I think what is so um, important an undertone of what you said is, it's beyond just the kind of surface level, like an MPS or a customer survey. You know, you gotta be all the way in for really being focused on what the customer wants. And, and I believe that when you are so focused on the outcome and you follow your steps and you use a design thinking kind of approach, solutions are gonna appear to you. 
the challenge that you also brought up was, are people on your team going to have the same perspective, urgency, and understanding of what those solutions are? So it doesn't seem like a nice to have, it's a must have. We need to do this. And here's the benefit. It's going to be much greater for us, but there might be a bit of short-term uncomfort, discomfort, but it's either a little bit of pain now or a lot of pain later. You know, choose your pain kind of thing. Anything you want to say about that? Did I get that? Yeah, I, I agree with I agree with everything you just said. And part of the hard work of figuring out how to lead these types of things is to recognize that you've got different people who are going to within your company. I mean, who are going to have different points of resistance and different things that will influence them in terms of helping overcome that resistance. You know, you know, if you just say, "Well, we need to do this because our stock price is in the toilet," well, you know, there are a lot of people at the company who. They don't own stock in the company, and it doesn't really, in any concrete way, change their life if there's the stock price of the company goes up and down. They may understand generally if the stock price goes down too much and threatens their jobs and all that. But whereas you have other people in the company who have options and they're holding lots of you know restricted stock for them, that if the stock price goes up ten percent, that could be more than they earn in their compensation for the regular pay, right? So. That's obviously going to influence them differently. You know, there's other people who may be very fearful of their jobs. Other people aren't concerned about that. You've got some people who are excited about new technology, other people that would just assume not have to deal with it. So, you know, you want to think, well, if we're doing this and we want the people in the call center to be excited about it, telling them that, you know, employee customer self-service to avoid costs to the call center, you know, is going to be great for the stock price. They might hear that and go, oh, well, yeah, but I don't care about that. And by the way, that's not so good for me, or at least you haven't helped me see why it's good for me. But on the other hand, if you then say, and what we're going to do is because we're going to have less inbound calls to the call center because of customer self-service, we're going to have some more of you guys do outbound calls to make new sales, and we're going to give you commission on those sales. So the more customers that get their basic questions answered online, the more time you're going to have to sell, you're going to be able to make more money. Now, all of a sudden, you've at least laid out a reason why some of those people may be enthusiastic. And even within those people, there might be some people who say, well, I don't want to sell. You know, I don't, I don't like that idea. But other people who go, wow, that sounds like a fantastic opportunity. And then you need to say, well, what about the other people? Well, we have another, we're going to have another group, which is going to be the people who deal with the really challenging customer service issues. So if you're great at customer service, do you like having to answer the phone all day long and have people ask you what time the store closes? You know, like how many times do you want to answer that question in a day? For many people, they would rather not have to do that repeatedly. So if you say we're going to automate some of the basic stuff, nobody's going to lose their job, but you're going to uh, be now doing more interesting work for other people. That will be a motivation, you know, and there are still other people for whom they would say, oh, that sounds like more work. I don't want harder work, you know, so and you have to just pare it down and say there's different people. It's just like marketing to customers. Not everyone's going to respond to the same marketing message. And by the way, there's also going to be a segment that no matter what you say, they hate the change. There's some people that you will never be able to win over. And ultimately, you need to decide what to do with those people, but recognize that when you undergo a giant transformation, you're probably going to stimulate more turnover. And whether that's voluntary turnover by people who say, I don't want, this isn't what I signed up for, and fair enough, or involuntary turnover because people just aren't on board. And eventually you say, you know, we, 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 we can't have somebody here who's not, who's so resistant to what we're doing despite our best efforts. And, you know, that can be a good thing for an organization. I, I don't think the answer, you know, the goal, I don't believe that the goal of digital transformation should be to go fire a bunch of people. But at the same time, sometimes some people, you know, they would be better off pursuing an opportunity somewhere else. And I think that's okay too. 
That's a very diplomatic way of saying that, but I get you. And I think that's what's important, you know, from a CEO leadership perspective or anybody on the leadership team is uh, looking at your locus of control and your perspective. If you're at the CEO level, you see your board, you see your senior management and you see your high level managers. So you see those people. Well, there's arguably way more employees down at the bottom of the chain, but because they're so far away. So when you're communicating that, making sure that they see the upside in it as well. So going through that, doing a change management plan, what's in it for them, and make sure that they're clear on how it affects you. Because it's not going to be always your middle managers that stop the change. It's the frontline employees where it really counts. That's where you're trying to affect the change. And you need to make sure they understand not only what, but why. That's absolutely right. And I think I agree with you. Cascading communication can be a very valuable technique because the closer someone is to an individual person, the call center manager is going to be in a much better position to know what to say to the people in the call center than is the CEO, of course. And so and part of what you is good to do is as part of leadership is to train the people who are in these manager roles, director roles, or what have you, on how to craft the right inspirational messages to their troops to you know drive the desired behaviors and those inspirational messages may be somewhat different they shouldn't be contradictory of course and they certainly should be truthful and by the way sometimes they need help with those those messages because they may need certain assurances or they may need certain policy determinations you know when you understand within your group there's going to be certain concerns if you're running IT and you're going to be getting rid of the mainframe and moving to a Java stack, and you've got all these COBOL programmers who you really don't want to lose because they have all this institutional knowledge, but you know that they're going to be concerned for their jobs, you may need to say to your whoever, your boss, your, your HR, I need to offer these people uh, 24-month contracts, even though they've always been at-will employees, because I want to show them that we're committed to them and we're not letting them go or I need to do a retention bonus, or I need to create a training budget to tell them that we're committed to them and we're sending them the courses to help them retrain, or, or, or a retirement package to say those people who don't want that, we're still gonna take care of you. Now, of course, those are not always easy things to get. Someone might not wanna put up the money for those types of things, but the truth is that part of transformation is funding the human side of it and figuring out how to not lose too much human capital in this process. And, you know, I know you mentioned what I said earlier sounded diplomatic, and I, I, I take your point. But sincerely, I think that it is not wise for companies to view their employees as fungible and just say, oh, well, if we're transforming, we'll just get rid of all these people and get a whole bunch, you know, our call center reps don't know how to use chat. And we want to move to a model where a lot of our call center interactions are moved to chat. Let's just fire all our call center people and hire people who know how to do chat. Well, that's usually not a very smart move because the people you have have all kinds of knowledge about your products, about your customer base, what they like, what they care about, you know, and your culture. I mean, these are things that are really valuable. Human capital is really valuable. And so I think, you know, although I stand by what I said earlier, which is that there are going to be some people who you can't get on board and you may need to separate those people that shouldn't be your larger strategy. I just don't think that's smart business. The larger strategy should be human transformation to go along with the broader digital transformation. Yeah, I get that. And th thank you for making that really clear because I, I agree and it makes sense. There's a lot more benefit and not to get sort of throw out the baby with the bathwater as that expression goes. And I think, you know, going back the human side of it and what I really liked out of 
Um, By the way, having having five kids, I have to say, I, I really don't think that's such a risk. You know, I'm not sure where that um, where that uh, saying comes from, but I, I I really don't think that uh, that's a real world problem. So anyway, just just we're just saying, if they subscribe to the podcast, maybe it's quite big. I don't think there's much chance. But anyway, sorry. I'm sure if they had big barrels back in the day, and it might have been more of a complicated <laughs> process a hundred years <laughs> <Maybe>. ago. <laughs> um, so just as we finish up here, what I really like is that as you do your digital transformation, what I took from that is, and especially on the people side of things. Your your actions send signals. If you say, hey, I want to offer a 24-month contract, it shows your commitment. Taking the action, showing your commitment is going to be one of those things that engenders buy-in. And I think it's going to be really important. Okay, so I did promise. Uh, uh, so in the two minutes or less we have left, talk about uh, the great resignation, employees, future or present as customers. What would be the one piece of advice you'd give to organizations from a digital transformation perspective on how they can mitigate slash take advantage of the current situation that is the air quotes, great resignation? Well, the one piece of advice is a little tough, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of quick thoughts. First of all, we have to ask, well, there's two key questions about the great resignation. What's causing it? And also, is it a, is it bad, right? Or is there a way for it to be fine for your company to have the great resignation? Uh, the first thing is what's causing it. And, and I think a lot of it is to do with this work from home thing. Um, it's not exclusively that, but I think a lot of it is that people have developed new behaviors that they like during COVID. And now companies, at least some companies, are trying to push them back to what people now perceive as antiquated ways of working. And so if you want to avoid the great resignation, I think the first thing to do is, or at least reduce it, is to allow your employees to work in more continual, work in more flexible ways. And rather than trying to go backwards, just like we were talking about with the restaurant menus, you know, a restaurant that went to a QR code bringing up just a simple menu could now choose to say, oh, well, we can go back. We don't need the QR codes anymore. We're gonna go back to handing out printed menus. That would be a choice as COVID wanes, or say, no, we're gonna double down. We're gonna move from the, the just of viewing the menu, but still giving the order to the waiter to a full digital ordering system. We wanna move forward rather than backward. And I think the same is true with this whole idea of the future of work. So I think that's, that's a component of the why, which is that some companies are not demonstrating to their employees that they're moving into the new world of how people want to work. Of course, there are also people who have realized that they can work on, you know, uh, uh, they can be an Uber driver or they can they can work in some part of the gig economy and don't need the downsides of working for a large company. And no matter what you do for them, they now want to work in another way, that, meaning another relationship to whoever's paying them. And I think the second thing that companies need to do is say, well, maybe that's fine. I mean, look at companies like Uber, you know, and, and um, Airbnb, and even to some degree, like I think Amazon is doing this with their delivery drivers where they're not employing everybody. They're creating different types of relationships with individual people. This is the gig economy. And so coming up with thinking through different ways of leveraging labor that may not be an employment relationship, but may actually be as good or even better for both parties, I think is a completely valid thing that companies need to be thinking more flexibly about. This is part of the thing that many companies have a fixed idea about how it should operate. And if they think more flexibly, you know, the way that Uber did, instead of going out and hiring thousands or hundreds of thousands of drivers, they use the model that they use. So I think that uh, that's the second thing. And, uh, and the third thing is, you know, I'm not a believer in digital transformation as a way to fire a whole bunch of people, right? I think that 
your employees are valuable and you shouldn't have a mindset of how do I get rid of people? Obviously, there's always poor performers. That's a different matter. But generally speaking, I don't think that's the smart move. Having said that, when companies are in a situation where employees are deciding to go somewhere else on their own, it's a time to ask the question, should we be rethinking the way we use human capital combined with automation? And is there a better way? And so if 30% of your employees decide to resign, you want to try to fight to keep the best ones, of course, and not just say it doesn't matter. So as I've already mentioned, several things you can do about it. But also you can ask yourself, well, what would our company look like if we had 30% less employees? And is there a way of using technology to actually deliver a better customer experience and not need to replace all those bodies? And so now you have the opportunity to move into a more digital operating model without the pain of having to figure out how do I fire all the people that I don't need anymore. So I think that's an opportunity moment the company should also be looking at. I'd love that. I think it really gives people some tangible things to take away, you know, looking forward, not backwards, uh, being adaptive, and then considering, you know, not having a fixed mindset in terms of uh, how you do things. So I think there's just so much gold in our conversation today. Howard, thank you so, so much. It's been a blast. And I learned a lot out of today. Um, where can people buy your book? Where can they learn more about your agency? And where can they connect with you personally? Sure. So first of all, if you're interested in the book, there's a website for the book. You can go to winningdigitalcustomers.com and there you can download the first chapter for free, read some reviews and other things. And there's also links to all the places you can buy it, which are all the usual suspects on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Apple and all these kinds of places. If you are interested in my uh, digital agency from the Digital Transformation Agency, where we do digital agency and consulting work around digital transformation, you can find our website at from.digital, from.digital. And uh, check me out on LinkedIn. You can look me up under my name, Howard Tierski. I publish a ton on LinkedIn, including two live casts every week. And uh, we'd love to, we'll love to see you there. Awesome. Thanks, Howard. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, it's just been really yeah. fun talking to you. Likewise, Thanks, for, joining Thanks us. for having me. Great questions. Talk to you soon. Let Talk to you soon. Thank you so much for joining us today. See Howard Tierski, the CEO of From, the Digital Transformation Agency, and the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. So thank you, Howard. Appreciate you joining us today. And we'll see you next time on the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Bye, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, I wanted to make sure that you knew about our signature course that will help you better align your team and get them bought into your strategic plan. It's presented really simply that whether you're a seasoned veteran or brand new to strategic planning, it'll help you better understand it. It'll help your team think more strategically and it'll help you better prioritize and set goals. Ultimately, it's gonna give you a plan that you can execute successfully. Because you have no idea how many plans that I see that look good, but are missing key components to make them successful. And we cover all of those missteps in the course. On top of all the video training, you'll get access to all of our workbooks and access to our knowledge base and community. The course is only $4.95 and you can get instant access to all of the videos. Plus you can use the code podcast for $100 off. The course comes with a 100% money back guarantee. If you don't get value from the course, let us know and we'll give you all of your money back. So go to smestrategy.net slash course. Use the code podcast for $100 off. And I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to support you and your team in getting alignment and moving your strategic plan forward. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time.